left fielders. Welcome to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. Our community is focused on networking and education to help people invest passively and think differently. Let's go. If you own the fourth best center in a submarket, you're probably going to not do well. If you own the best retail center that everybody wants to be at, it's at the right corner, the right visibility, the right demographics, the right egress and ingress, all those things that make a retail center work, that's where you want to be today. Since you are here listening to this podcast, there's a good chance you're investing with a group of people. Whether you're investing with family or friends or like-minded people in the left field investors community, group investing is a strategy that can get you into more deals, help you diversify, and go beyond what you can achieve by yourself. Before TribeVest came along, it was difficult to overcome all the hurdles associated with group investing. It was basically a strategy reserved for the wealthy, not anymore. Now, TribeVest helps your group with everything from incorporation, collaboration, banking, and equity management tools all in a single place. So you can focus on building wealth with the people you know, like, and trust. I'm using TribeVest for all five, now six, of my investor tribes. It's a game changer. Check them out at TribeVest.com. You are listening to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast, powered by TribeVest. The mission of Left Field Investors is to build a community of like-minded individuals interested in creating financial freedom through passively investing in real assets that generate real cash flow. In this podcast, Jim Piper will interview passive investors, syndicators, and others who will share their journey with a focus on helping the passive real estate investor learn and become part of the Left Field community. This is Whitney Sewell from LifeBridge Capital. You are listening to Passive Investing from Left Field. I'm pleased today to have Rob Levy, founding partner of LBX Investments with us. They focused currently on neighborhood and community shopping centers, and they've also added Class B value-add multifamily to the portfolio. And we're excited to hear mostly about the retail because that's something new for us here at Left Field Investors. So Rob, welcome to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So the first question I always ask is kind of what, what's your journey? How did you get into real estate? How did you get into syndications? How did you get into retail and multifamily? If you could just talk about how you got here, that, w- that would be a great way to start. Sure. Well, thanks, Jim. I appreciate you having me here. I have been in real estate for 30 plus years now. So my entire career, I uh, came out of college and, and got a job with a local real estate consulting firm in, in New York where I, I grew up. And then went from there, mostly on the institutional side. I worked at Prudential, as an example, in in their real estate investment group for about six years. They paid for my business school, which was wonderful while I was there. And then they um, transferred me over to the investment bank, where I became an investment banker and a stock analyst covering the publicly traded real estate companies. And that's where I got my first exposure to retail, by the way. A bunch of my clients were in the retail space, so I, I learned that space well in that area. I then moved to a different investment bank out in California for a few years, where I was also an investment banker and a uh, and a stock analyst. And then I got a position at a firm in New York that where I eventually became the CEO of, primarily focused on multifamily. Actually, we were one of the largest owners and operators of multifamily in the country. 
and also had a large multifamily finance platform, debt platform. We sold that company. We were a public company and took it private, sold it to a private equity group. And I left at that time. I was there for 13 years and then wanted to do something on my own. And so my partner, uh, Phil Block, and I, who worked together at that company, was called Centerline Capital Group. And we created LBX and have been investing in real estate for our company for the past four or five years. So that's kind of been my journey. I, you know, I've been in you know, investment banking, I've been in equity research, I've been in investments and asset management, finance, really almost every area of the real estate kind of life cycle. And I've been in multifamily retail hotels. I spent about four or five years at Prudential in the hotel investment group. So I have kind of a diverse background in real estate. Yeah, that's for sure. So having experience with all of those different asset classes under the real estate umbrella, why did you choose to focus, at least initially, on retail and shopping centers? What was the reason for that? So my partner and I, we're, we're contrarian in, by nature and looking for value. And so when we got back together, we sold that company called Centerline back in 2014 and kind of regrouped in 2016 together and started thinking about what did we want to do in the real estate space and we're just contrarian. We felt that there was a lot of money flowing into other areas of real estate and that retail was you know, kind of capital starved at the time and not a lot of focus. And you know, after doing a bunch of research around it, we felt that there was a lot of noise around retail and we thought some of it was inaccurate. You know, what you read in the press we felt was not necessarily appropriate and accurate as to what was really happening on the ground. And we just felt there was an opportunity to buy really good real estate at attractive yields. And what was the noise that you mentioned that you, I guess, disagreed with, right? Or thought that it was not accurate? What was that? Well, I, I mean, I think that the, you know, the media tends to kind of group things together in large sections, right? And, and so everything, you know, is, you know, kind of the typical throwing the baby out with the bathwater, right? So it, you know, all retail is dead or all retail is dying. And that's just not true. I mean, it's just not reality. Certainly, there are pockets of retail that are struggling. You know, the B and C mall space is struggling. We do not invest in malls. That was you know something that very early on we said we're not going to focus on. But there are pockets of retail that are actually performing very well. Our portfolio today, and we'll get I'm sure more into that, is we're you know 93, 94% occupied, and that was through a pandemic, which certainly you know tested all of our kind of strategies and and investments in retail. So. It's just not reality. But if you pick up, you know, the newspaper or you watch the news shows, you just hear about Amazon and e-commerce and online, and which certainly I don't want to sound naive is having an impact on retail. But what it's doing is is waiting out the bad retailers. There's good retailers coming into those spaces, and actually today, besides the fact that our occupancy is high, our leasing momentum is probably stronger than it has been over the past five years. So talk about the pandemic, right? Because before the pandemic, as you said, the noise was there, right? The asset class retail is not going to thrive because of Amazon and, and all the online shopping and all that. But then you add on to that the pandemic where now no one can go shopping at all. So talk about how that affected things and what the outlook is now. And then then I want to kind of dive into what, what the asset class actually is. Sure. First of all, our exposure in our portfolio is we have a lot of our centers are either grocery anchored, 
or kind of more discount oriented. So we have Ross and Targets and you know those types of tenants that are focused on kind of more discount oriented offerings. And those actually performed extremely well in the pandemic. You know, they they they're national companies. They were able to figure out you know, delivery systems and on-site delivery and off-site delivery, et cetera. So they kind of figured that out and, and actually performed extremely well. So most of our centers have, you know, a grocer or one of those or a couple of those, and then has the local mom and pops. You'd think that the local mom and pops would be the ones that were really impacted during COVID. But you also have to understand that these are their livelihoods. These are their businesses, right? The, you know, the local pizza place and the local hair salon, et cetera, they will do everything that they can to not close, right? This is 100% their livelihoods. And we had very, very few stores closing during the pandemic. And almost everybody was paying on time. We had a couple of deferrals we put in place, a couple of rent deferrals. And that was really it. The rent collections were very strong throughout. Our occupancy was strong throughout and everybody survived and did and did great. So we felt really strong about that. And you know, one of the things that we really focus on, which we should really talk about, is you don't want to just own any retail. You want to own the best retail because there is risk around it, right? If you own the fourth best center in a submarket, you're probably going to not do well. If you own the best retail center that everybody wants to be at, it's at the, the right corner, the right visibility, the right demographics, the right egress and ingress, and all those things that make a retail center work, that's where you want to be today. A couple questions on that. So, the COVID, it didn't really affect you guys very much because you were in the type of properties that that were able to survive through that. So how do you pick those properties? How do you know? Obviously, I, I assume you didn't know there was a pandemic coming, but I think you know the pandemic really just accelerated some of the online shopping and curbside pickup and all that stuff that might have been coming anyway. So is that how you were preparing for you were preparing for the online to be more and more prevalent and then the pandemic just kind of accelerated things? Absolutely. That's what the pandemic did is it accelerated the trends that we were already seeing in the retail space. And if you were, you know, good enough and smart enough, uh, which I, you know, I think we were to pick the right types of real estate and in the right markets, right? You wanted to be in markets where you're seeing demographic growth and where you're seeing income growth. We're picking properties, as I said before, with the right types of visibility, right? You don't want to have own a center where, you're hidden behind other buildings, behind trees, whatever it might be. You want you want good visibility. You want ingress and egress because the right tenants need to be where their customers can get in and out easily. So you kind of put all of those pieces together. You also want the right credit, right? There are good retailers and there's bad retailers. You know, the TJ Maxx, as an example, is a great company. It has tremendous balance sheet, tremendous income statement. They are a very, very healthy retailer. So you want to have those types of credits in your center. You want to have a Publix or a Kroger or an Aldi. You want those types of tenants that have the right balance sheets, the right income statements, the right amount of cash flow that can really support themselves during tough periods. And you also want the right size boxes. You don't want to have the right tenants, but in wrong size boxes because they adjust over time. Like Burlington, as an example, is a great retailer, but it used to be in 40,000 square foot stores and now it's in 30,000 square foot stores. So you want to make sure you don't have a Burlington that's 40 or 40,000, 5,000 square feet. So you kind of, there's all these variables that we look at when we're buying a center that kind of tells us that that's a good piece of real estate, a good piece of retail, and something else is not. That, well, that makes sense to me. And, you know, you mentioned demographic growth income growth, those kind of things. That's the same kind of thing we look at when we're investing in self-storage, multifamily, 
So that's very similar. But what? How do I know? As a just a passive investor, I'm going to invest with you. How do I know what to look at? How do I underwrite that or analyze that as a passive investor? When I look at one of your deals, I know how to look at a self storage. I know how to look at multifamily. When I look at your deals, I mean, I, I just don't know what I'm looking at. So how do we get over that? Well, our job is to educate our investors and to communicate. I ran a public company for a number of years. And when we set up LBX, our goal was to create a platform where our communication and our transparency was as good as a public company. That's what we did when we ran Centerline. We were noted as being fantastic in our communications and transparency with our investors. We had, you know, in certain ways you had to be as a public company, but there are public companies that do better and worse than that. And we wanted to transform or, or take that focus from the public world and create a smaller real estate private equity platform that had the same focus of transparency and communication. So I think that anybody who invests in our deals will tell you, I, I hope that we do an amazing job as far as how we communicate information to them on a monthly or quarterly basis. And upfront, when we are acquiring an asset, we put together a very, very detailed analysis of the pros and cons, why we believe this is the right type of real estate in the right market, and also from a, you know, the right pricing, the right risk and return perspective on that piece of real estate. And I think that anybody who reads that investment summary we put together, which is very detailed, sometimes it's too detailed for some people who don't want to read a 25 or 30 page document, but we're happy to spend time with people and walk them through that and educate them as to why we believe this is, this is the right asset for us. Okay. So- Talk a little bit about how the deals work, right? You're buying the real estate. You don't own any part of Target. Target does great. That doesn't, you know, you don't get any of that revenue, right? So are these triple net leases? How do the leases work and, and how are the deals structured and the, the term of the deal and what happens when somebody moves out? Can you just talk some about the whole process? I know that's a that's a big question, but again, I'm not familiar with retail, so I'm trying to understand the, the whole deal start maybe with a little bit with uh, with pricing, right? So where, where we can typically price a retail deal is, you know, it depends, and it depends, right? It depends on the asset, but, you know, somewhere between call it a six and a half to 7% cap rate all the way up to eight, eight and a half, nine percent cap rate. So day one, if we're buying good real estate, typically our cash flow to our investors is strong. We're not high levered guys. We're not layering in significant debt to get to strong cash flow. We're typically layering in relatively low leverage, 60, 65% leverage to get there. And so day one, we can produce strong cash flow to our investors and to the property that we're underwriting. So that's that's number one. So most of the, you know, so stepping into the real estate now, the leases are mostly triple net, not always. Typically they are triple net. So they're paying their base rent, they're paying their share of common area maintenance, insurance, taxes, some utilities, water, et cetera. And we operate, so we are completely vertically integrated company. So we have our own property management, asset management, you know, accounting, finance, et cetera, leasing. So we do all that in-house. Uh, we have a great team uh, headquartered in Atlanta where most of our people are. And so we do all that work ourselves. So, you know, you said when tenants kind of move in, move out, I mean, the, the cash flow on these deals is significant enough. And we always take a very conservative approach when we're capitalizing our deals up front. We capitalize it with equity. So we have cash sitting on balance sheet. 
We don't over distribute to our investors. We distribute conservatively. We keep that cash there in case there is need for capital to replace a tenant. But you know, most of our most of the leases are relatively long term, between five and ten years. And we we also that's another thing we look at is to make sure that we don't have significant upfront risk of rollover and that it's kind of layered in properly into the property so that we have, you know, we don't have one year where we have fifty percent of the leases rolling. And there's plenty of cash flow. And also a lot of times we'll set up our loans so that we can draw upon a loan to pay for tenant improvements or leasing commissions when a lease rolls. Okay. That was a lot there. A couple questions. The cap rates are, are significantly higher than multifamily. Is that because people just think that retail is riskier? Yeah, it's just, it's a supply demand, right? There, there is just less, which is what we like about it, right? I mean, and I know a lot about the, certainly about the multifamily world and, and we have looked at a bunch of multifamily deals. And so the question for us is as investors, because I put my own money into these deals as well, do I feel that the risk of buying a multifamily in a secondary market at a four cap or a three and a half cap where they're trading today, right? Is more or less risky than buying a, Kroger anchored shopping center in a strong market at a seven cap. Like that's the question, right? And my view is that we can buy really good real estate at very attractive yields in great locations with upside. And I, in my view is that's less risky. That's, you know, that's just, that's just my personal view. I mean, I'll give an example. We bought a center in Orlando and this center is about a mile from the University of Central Florida, which is now the largest university in the country. It has like 65,000 students. And we bought the center for $19.8 million. It was a 20-acre parcel. So we bought a, a shopping center, which was a good, solid shopping center. We bought it at a, about an eight and a half cap rate. And so it's producing great cash flow day one. And on top of that, we bought it at basically land value. Land in that area is going for about a million dollars an acre. So, I mean, to me, that's a fantastic play, right? If the whole thing were to fall apart, which of course it hasn't, we'd own it for land value. And there's a tremendous amount of development going on in that area. If you don't know it, there's student housing going up and hotels and all this stuff because of the university and, and other growth areas around Orlando. And we're sitting on the best corner in the submarket. So to me, that's a fantastic risk return equation, right? We're buying it for land value buying it at an eight and a half cap. So we're producing 10, 11, 12% cash on cash returns to our investors day one. And at the same time, where our downside is completely protected by the fact that we're buying it for the value of the land. Hey, left fielders, this is Julian McClurkin. When I'm not on the court with the Harlem Globetrotters, I'm the chief storyteller for TribeVest. Now you might be thinking, why would TribeVest hire a Globetrotter? <laughs> well, through my travels around the world, I've met so many amazing people and heard their incredible stories. And it's no different at TribeVest. My job is to share the stories of people investing together as a group, as a tribe. TribeVest allows groups to pool their capital, set up their LLCs and bank accounts, help with operating agreements, funding rounds, and so much more. Whether you're investing with other dads from your kid's preschool class or getting into real estate syndications with people around the country like LFI infielder Brian Pawnell, TribeVest helps them all make it happen. If you want to hear more about stories about TribeVest's customers, just check out TribeVest's YouTube channel. And if you're already ready to start investing as a group, 
Head on over to TryBest.com today. So you mentioned upside. What is the upside compared to something that we're more familiar with, like multifamily, you know, as far as maybe a multiple on exit, how long do you hold? And then what is the exit strategy? Who are you selling to? Are you selling to REITs that once you've stabilized the property or are you selling to other people that, you know, like in multifamily, you have to hold a few units where you don't renovate? I mean, there, there isn't really that here. So what's the exit and what's the upside? Sure. So the upside, there's a few different strategies that we focus on. The first is, a lot of times we're actually buying from the REITs. So we like buying from the REITs because we find that they're massive, right? So they don't look at all of the value creation ideas that we look at. You know, For them to increase NOI by 5 or 10% at a property is just not that meaningful when they're looking at a huge portfolio. For us, it's very meaningful. So there's we feel there's a lot of meat on the bone when we are buying from one of these larger institutions, including some of the public REITs. So we have bought from a number of the major public REITs. The strategies are typically that a lot of times the tenants are playing, paying below market rents or the center is not properly capitalized. So they, you know, so they haven't improved parking lots or the, or the landscaping or the facades or all these things that if you, you don't have to spend a ton of money to get there, you, we, we kind of go into these centers, we capitalize them properly, we invest in lighting, parking lots, landscaping, facades, whatever it might be. And with that, we can then push rents usually pretty significantly. And especially in today's with inflation, uh, certainly we're seeing inflation in rents as well. So that's certainly one strategy. So we're investing in the real estate and then pushing rents. There's also opportunities at times to either develop or monetize out parcels, which are kind of the the parcels along the street that might have like a Taco Bell or Kentucky Fried Chicken or something like that. Those are very, very valuable because they trade at very tight cap rates. So like, for example, going back to the Orlando deal I just mentioned to you, we bought it for $19.8 million. We had out parcels with, a, we had a Taco Bell and Amscot, which is a regional kind of cash management player down in Florida. There was a local Chinese restaurant, which we have redeveloped with a national brand. So we bought the center at an eight and a half to 9% cap rate, and we're selling those out parcels at 5% cap rates or less. And so that arbitrage is very valuable to us and with our, uh, and our investors. So that's another strategy that we're working on. So, and then you ask who, who's buying them. There's a lot of investors out there. The REITs are now starting to buy more. You know, there's other local regional players out there buying. So there's definitely, there's less buyers than in a multifamily world. One of the things we like about about the retail space is that when we're bidding on a deal, we're usually one of four or five bidders. Whereas in the multifamily space, you're one of you know 30, 35, 40 bidders potentially. So we like that dynamic. But there, you know, it's still a liquid market. So there's still plenty of buyers out there when we're selling. You mentioned that most of these are anchored by a grocery store like Kroger or Target or TJ Maxx. So how do you diversify? Meaning are you jumping on every target that's in a good market? The fear there would be what happens if something happens to target, right? And now you have a target in six of your centers and target's gone now, which I don't know that that's going to happen. But how do, you, how do you deal with the diversification of the anchor tenant? Or is that something you, you think about? Oh, absolutely. I mean, there's no there's kind of single tenant today that we're overexposed to. In fact, we'd like more exposure to certain... We'd love more exposure to Publix, as an example. We have one Publix shopping center. We'd love to have a couple more. We have a shadow anchored with an Aldi, and Aldi is a fantastic operator. We'd love to have more Aldi's, Kroger. So 
there's plenty of good retailers out there to diversify our portfolio and exposures. And we don't, you know, we have, we have, I think, three targets today, but most of the targets are actually shadow anchored. So we don't actually own that real estate. Target owns that real estate and we own the center next to them or attached to them. And that's actually great for us because they drive massive amounts of traffic to our center and then we just own the, you know, the, the shops next to it. So if you had a choice, would you prefer to own the entire center or do you, do you prefer the shadow anchor? Well, with certain tenants, you don't have the option, right? The way it was developed day one was that Target kind of developed their own store and whoever the original developer was developed it alongside them. So that's just kind of a, a pretty typical structure. And with the grocers, it's a little bit different. The grocers tend to be tenants. They don't tend to own their own real estate. Although like Publix has been buying back some of the centers where they're, where they're leasing space. And so it's a bit of a mix. Aldi owns, as another example, they own a bunch of their own real estate. So it's kind of a mix. And it doesn't really matter to us. You know, we're, we're happy to own it. We're happy to sit next to them as long as they're the right credit and the right operator and, and drive the right traffic to the center. Okay. And you mentioned debt. You typically are at 60 to 65% uh, loan to value. How is debt different than, again, I compare everything to multifamily because that's what most of us are investing in. You know, multifamily now, there's a lot of bridge debt. There's some concerns about that. Is that the same in retail or is the debt structure different? Well, it's, it is different. And I come out of the, you know, as I said, I spent 13 years in the multifamily finance world. So I certainly know, you know, those structures well with Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, FHA, et cetera. So I, I know that world really well. It is different to get your returns in the multifamily world today. If you're buying at a four cap, the only way to get your returns is you have to assume really healthy rental growth, obviously. And you have to kind of layer in leverage to get there, right? That's the only way to get to compete for return on, on equity. In the retail world, we don't have to do that. We don't have to push leverage to get there. And you don't want to, right? Uh, you know, we're very happy being low levered. And we do all of our borrowing. We don't work in the securitized world. We don't borrow through CMBS or structured debt because we just feel it's a really bad way to borrow money. We borrow money through banking relationships. We have kind of a, a really deep and wide set of banking relationships. So we're borrowing from you know banks and credit unions and some life companies who we have relationships with, and that's it. So it's much less risky debt structures than you might see in other sectors. So the cap rates are high, which seems counterintuitive, but high is good when you're when you're buying. The debt structures are better. There's less competition. Why isn't everyone investing in in retail instead of multifamily? Well, at least you have to be careful. Like I don't I don't want to sound naive as if every, you know, retail property is is a great deal, right? I mean, it, it is a space where you have to be a true expert. You don't want to own and operate retail unless you really understand it and you really have the right people on the ground who can help you manage it and lease it. And it's a roll up your sleeves kind of day-to-day -day business, right? Every day, my partner and I get on the phone with our asset managers, our property managers, our leasing people. And it's a really kind of intense day-to-day management business. And so if you're good at it and you understand it and you know how to operate it and you have to have the right relationships, right? You have to be able to pick up the phone and call the people at Publix or Kroger or TJ Maxx or whatever, you know, or Target, whoever it might be. You have to have those direct relationships 
because you have to understand how they're operating, where they're happy, where they're not happy, what the issues are. So you have to have that kind of holistic view and you have to be able to, and you have to have that infrastructure on the ground. And if you have that and you own good retail, you'll do really well. But there is bad retail out there and there are operators who don't have those relationships. And that, in my view, is dangerous. And when we're talking about, obviously, malls, indoor malls are struggling. And I've heard people talk about open air retail. Is that what we're talking about with the anchors and then you walk to the next store? Or are we talking about complete open air malls where every, you know, like it's a regular mall, but basically no roof on it, right? Is that, what, what's open air retail, I guess, is the question. Uh, I mean, listen, it's like, you know, semantics, right? A lot of people use different words. I mean, from our perspective, we're buying primarily neighborhood and community shopping centers, the stuff that you or me might, might go to on a Saturday afternoon and, you know, go to a Costco or go to the Target or and go to buy some pizza for the kids or get a haircut or whatever it might be, or ha- might have a gym there. That's we're buying. Everything, it's outdoors, not enclosed. The enclosed space is really struggling for various reasons. Although, honestly, there are some great enclosed malls that I think will continue to do really well. I mean, I live in northern New Jersey and there's a property called the Garden State Plaza, right? 15 miles from my house. And I went there last weekend because my son needed something and it was a an absolute mob scene. So I think that there are malls that will do extremely well also, but we just stay away from that space. It's a very different world. It's different retailers, it's different cost structure, different risks, and you have to be kind of an expert in that area. And what we're really good at is something else. That makes sense. At least all of it did until you mentioned pizza for the kids. The pizza is going to be mine if I'm going to get the pizza. But that's that's a whole nother podcast, I think. Right. I want to move on to multifamily and kind of reverse the question now, right? So if there's so many opportunities with high cap rates and all that in retail, why then go and, and start looking into multifamily? Well, we have been looking for a couple of years now and we haven't bought anything. So maybe that tells you and we might be wrong, right? I'm not saying that we're smarter than anybody else because there's good multifamily, there's great multifamily out there. And what we have seen because of inflation, et cetera, that rental rates in the multifamily space are increasing significantly. I just struggle getting comfortable with it, I, you know, honestly. And again, I, I could be wrong and, and other people could be right. And in fact, if I look back five or so years ago, and my partner Phil and I talk about this all the time, if we bought multifamily five years ago and we started, we have we would have done extremely well. And we felt back at that time that multifamily was pricey. And so we we stayed away from multifamily at the time and we bought retail. And you know, listen, we've done well with retail, so I'm not gonna complain, but we certainly would have done really well if we bought multifamily at that time as well. I just struggle with three and a half and four cap rates. I struggle with these some of these tertiary and secondary markets where the pricing has gotten very aggressive. I struggle with some of the underwritings that I see that is which is the only way you can make the numbers work, where we see, you know, kind of these really significant rental growth rates. You know, that you everybody has the same underwriting, right? You spend nine thousand or ten thousand a unit and voila, you've got, you know, five, six, seven percent annual rental growth. And you sell it in five years at a at a you know four and a half cap or a five cap, whatever it is, and you've made a nice you know sixteen seventeen percent return. All sounds great. I struggle that that there's going to continue to be the rental growth that we have seen, and so therefore I think that those numbers are aggressive for me. And I also feel like if you know, if you can only get there by layering in 
high leverage bridge or that type of debt, if you can't get to those numbers, then you're putting yourself at risk at the end of the day. And so I have stayed away. We have underwritten a ton of multifamily. We had a couple that we got close on, but we just never got there for those reasons. Yeah, I think that's really well said. And and you know, anyone could have made money in the last five years of multifamily. I mean, I, I own some multifamily myself and I completely mismanaged them and made a bunch of money. So I think it it's interesting to look at it that way because multifamily is so popular and so many people are still flocking to it. And, you know, we live in a finite world. It can't rent can't grow forever. At some point, something's gonna have to change. So I think having some diversification within asset classes into something like retail would make some sense. Yeah, this I agree. And I'm sure there's going to be a lot of skeptics uh, that maybe listen to this call. And I'm happy to get on the phone, talk through, show our current deals, show you know what we have looked at. We have been in business for four, four and a half years. We did a little bit of this beforehand as well. So we've really been in this strategy for close to six years. But LBX has been in existence for four years. And we have acquired 11 centers in that period. I think we're just, we've been very careful. We get outbid all the time and we pass on a bunch of deals, a lot of deals. And I think that we have done a good job of you know, kind of focusing on the right real estate and we'll continue to do that. So I would love to be happy to get on the phone with, and, and my partner would be the same way. And we also have a gentleman, Heath Bender, who runs our, our investor relations and communications. He does a great job as well. Happy to get on the phone with people and talk them through how we look at real estate, how we look at retail why our retail is performing well and and hopefully get some people comfortable with that. Yeah, I think that'd be great. Like I said, our left field investors community is always looking for new opportunities, quality opportunities. And this sounds super interesting to me. Before we get to your uh, contact info, the last question I ask on the podcast is, what's a great podcast that you listen to? You know, it's very funny. I listen to a, a bunch of podcasts my kids make a lot of fun of, of me for that because I love to on the weekends go out for a nice, long, slow run. I used to be faster now that I'm, I'm older. <laughs> it's a slow run. And I listen to a lot of different podcasts while I'm doing that. And so there's a bunch that I do enjoy. There's one called Deep Background. And this guy's name, his name is Noah Feldman. And he's got to be like one of the smartest guys I have ever listened to. I don't agree with all of that he, that he says. He is a Harvard law professor and he could, so he comes at all his his discussions from kind of a constitutional law kind of direction, but he has like all these different discussions around some of it's around politics, some of it is around technology. He did a, a bunch around different kind of asset classes and he's just a brilliant guy and a brilliant speaker. And I do like his podcasts a lot. So I would recommend uh, Deep Background with Noah Feldman. I think it's interesting. Okay. I will definitely check that out. And you know, I always think it's good to hear someone on a podcast or anywhere with uh, opinions that you don't agree with, right? That's the only way you, you learn something new maybe. So that, that's definitely one I'm going to check out. Thank you for that. And then if our listeners wanted to get in touch with you or LBX, well, what's the best way to do that? So my email address is rob at lbxinvestments.com. So anybody can certainly email me. Our website is lbxinvestments.com. And if you go on our website, you'll find my my contact information, uh, Phil Block, my, my partner, Heath Bender, who runs, as I said, our investor relations and communication. So any of us be happy to reach out to. On, the, on our website, you'll see all of our deals. You'll see 
our investment summaries, and we we do put out uh, quarterly research on the retail space. So hopefully, some of that is also helpful and and educational. So we'll be putting out our year end piece shortly, just to hopefully give people an opportunity to learn a little bit more about the space. So any of those I think would be helpful. Excellent. Well, I will uh, put that in the show notes. And thank you so much. This was fantastic. Learning about a new asset class is always interesting to me. And I'm always chasing shiny objects. So there's, it's going to be hard for me to resist the next time you send out something. Um, I'll definitely take a look at it. Super interesting. Thank you for being on the show. Well, thank you. I appreciate the time and uh, look forward to further discussions. Excellent. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by MAG Capital Partners, a leading investment firm specializing in single-tenant industrial real estate with triple net leases. MAG invests in properties with established tenants in manufacturing, cold storage, and distribution. These income investments are designed for strong, tax-advantaged cash flow from day one and have historically generated above-market returns. With approximately $500 million of real estate acquisitions, MAG Capital Partners has extensive experience and a history of profitable exits. To learn more about MAG Capital Partners, visit www.magcp.com. That was a fun conversation with Rob learning about a new asset class, although it's similar to what I'm already doing with some single tenant triple net leases. I guess I really didn't understand what retail was every time it came up and someone wanted me to invest in retail, I just ran the other way because I didn't know anything about it. Pre-pandemic, I didn't like it. During the pandemic, it seemed even worse, but he really opened our eyes. You know, the contrarian view is what he said they had and they're looking for value. And the cap rates are certainly different than multifamily, more attractive than multifamily. And it's just a different asset class. So getting into something different always adds some diversification. Talked about how they add value, which I didn't realize you could add value on triple net leases, but restructuring some things or those uh, the properties, I forget what he called them, but like the Taco Bell and, and making those, buying it at a, a nine and then renting it out at a five cap or, or selling it at a five cap. That's a great arbitrage there. And I really also liked how he said, you know, they're getting outbid a lot. He said that for the multifamily, but also for the retail. And although you want them to win deals, it's encouraging when they're not winning all the deals because then that kind of makes you nervous. And to learn that they're going to stick to it and say, we're not going to do a deal just for the sake of doing deals gives me some confidence, especially in the multifamily, right? They haven't done a deal, although they've been looking. And that gives you some confidence that they are conservative, even on their retail stuff, that they're not going to just go out there and and do deals for the sake of doing deals, which I think some people, some sponsors feel pressure to do that. So as I said, I really enjoyed the conversation and I'm definitely going to keep track of LBX and and evaluate some of the opportunities that, that they do send our way. Great conversation. We'll see you next time in the left field. Thanks for hanging out in left field with us today. If you're interested in becoming a left fielder, you can find us on the World Wide Web at www.leftfieldinvestors.com or you can send me an email, jim at leftfieldinvestors.com. Thank you for listening to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. If you enjoy the show, please go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and rate and review the show. 
This show is for entertainment purposes only. Nothing said on the show should be considered financial advice. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by Passive Investing from Left Field and Left Field Investors. Written permissions must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.